Good afternoon and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association and in conjunction with WERU, your community radio station. Common Ground can be heard on the second Thursday of each month at 4 p.m. right here on WERU. And archives of previous episodes can be found on WERU's website at WERU.org, as well as the WERU app for your smartphone. My name is CJ Walk. I use he, him pronouns, and I am your host for Common Ground Radio. For today's show, we are listening to one of the keynote addresses from the 2020 Common Ground Country Fair. This address was given by Winona LaDuke from the White Earth Reservation in Minnesota, and the date of the address was Sunday, September 27th, 2020. Winona talks to us a bit about her work there on the White Earth Reservation, as well as the future for our new green revolution. This keynote address is moderated by Sarah Alexander, MOCTA's Executive Director, as well as Beth Schiller, Certified Organic Farmer and MOCTA Board President. Thank you so much for inviting me today to talk about food and justice and seeds in this time that we are in. In this moment in time, you know, maybe our ancestors will look to this time as the time of the seventh fire, the time when we have a choice between two paths, one well-worn and scorched. Or maybe they would refer to this in the future as the time of the bat, because in Anishinaabe history and teachings, we've been told that a lot of times a small creature can change the world. And at this moment, so that the COVID pandemic came from a bat. In the larger picture, the United Nations talks about the loss of biodiversity as a cause of things like this pandemic, because the more that you encroach on the wild, the more dangerous things will come to your territory and to your people. That's a teaching of Anishinaabe people. That's a teaching of all of us. Don't mess with mother nature. So this is a talk about the times that we're in and the times that we, opportunity we have in this time. I like what Erin Dottie Roy, the, the, the Indian writer, talks about. And she talks about the idea of a pandemic as a portal. In that, she says, historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice, that our hatred, our avarice, our data banks, and our dead ideas, our dead rivers, and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through it lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight with us. We intend to walk into that next world with our communities. So I wanna talk about where we are in this time. First slide I got is a slide of, of Gete Okosaman. That's like a, a really old squash. I call it the uh, Gete Okosaman, which, which means really cool old squash. And inside that squash is about uh, 1,600 seeds, 1,600 seeds. And to me, a seed, and to me, planting is a lot about promise, and the squash is a lot about promise. And indigenous seeds and indigenous foods are central to our survival in our future generations. And I'm going to tell you why. America was once very great, and in that great, there was tremendous biodiversity from the 50 million buffalo to the agrobiodiversity of 8,000 varieties of corn. That's when America was great. 
the loss of biodiversity is associated with colonization and is associated with globalization. But remember in the great times that we were self-sufficient people and we could feed ourselves. They say you can't see your sovereign if you can't feed yourself. And I think that's a little of the challenge that we face now. But in this moment, what we find is, is that indigenous people's seeds and biodiversity still remain central to the potential to protect our world and protect future generations. That is through adaptation. You know, on a worldwide scale, they're spending about major corporations like Monsanto and Syngenta are talking about climate change adaptation varieties that they're developing. They're introducing those, sucking up pretty much billions of dollars to create climate smart varieties. $136 million is the average cost for climate smart species, seeds per species. In the meantime, indigenous nations worldwide are adapting our pre-petroleum varieties to the times ahead. Combined on a worldwide level, indigenous farmers are producing today 70% of the world's food. That's our future and that's food security. And remember also that indigenous people are the people that, although we're about 4% of the world's population, we live over and amongst about 75% of the world's biodiversity. That's where the wild things are. That's where we live. And so what you want in the time of COVID, in the time of crisis, is to figure out how we're going to survive. This is really a, a small snapshot of what the future and climate change challenged world will be. And it is our opportunity to be smarter, not to try to go back to normal, but to be smarter. So how are we going to do that? We're going to learn what relocalization is about. Oma King, how to be here on our land, here to the land which the people belong. And why do I say that? Because in the big picture, you know, it turns out that size matters. And what I mean by that in this particular case is that big agricultural systems fail us in a time of COVID. That's to say that the average American meal tells 1,400 miles from farmer to table. That's not working. And we're just going to, we've just taken a pretty big hit because of that. So during the beginning of the COVID pandemic, by mid-March, farmers were dumping thousands of gallons of fresh milk into lagoons and manure pits. Idaho farmers dug ditches to bury millions of pounds of potatoes. 3.7 million gallons of milk daily in a single chicken processor was smashed 750,000 unhatched eggs every week. Big is not good, can't change fast. But what we have in our own communities is these traditional seeds. And we have this history that we are making of rematriation, the return of our seeds and the return of our traditional foods to our communities. And within that, and the transition to small scale renewable energy, it's really the security for our future. So let me talk about the potato. You know, today we are in this, we find that in Northern Minnesota, we are battling the single largest independent potato grower in the, in the country, as RDO Offit. They grow one or two varieties of potatoes, but you know, climate change scientists are looking at how to adapt potatoes now, and where they go to is of course, indigenous peoples. The potato park in Cusco, Peru is an epicenter potato diversity today. The Peruvian museums host over 5,000 varieties of potatoes and the park itself has about 1,300 varieties growing in the sacred valley of the Inca. Potatoes which saved Europe from famine because you know everything is underground and not above have uh, saved Europe from famine 300 years ago but then were also the source of the of the Irish potato famine are today 
being looked at to save our future generations. By sowing potatoes at different altitudes and different combinations, these potatoes create new genetic expressions that will be very important to respond to the challenges of climate change. Indigenous potatoes from those uh, ancestors coming into the future. That is all we must do. We must rebuild our food systems. You can't travel 1,400 miles from farmer to table. And when we rebuild them, we, we rebuild them with a lot of our traditional varieties. Now everybody knows, or a lot of people know I'm a corn grower. I've been growing corn for about 30 years. That's because my father told me that he didn't want to hear my philosophy if I couldn't grow corn. So I've been growing corn and I, I grow pretty much this year, I'm growing a Mandan variety. I'm growing an Oneida white flint corn. And I'm growing a Seneca pink lady, but I also grow a Bear Island flint. And what I noticed when I first grew my corn is that it was like really short. And I thought, oh, I have failed. But it turns out that a lot of these varieties don't need to grow tall. All they need to do is put on an ear. And if they could put on an ear, then they put on the food that you need. So a lot of our old school varieties from my region, the north, you know, Ojibwe people pushed corn nor furthest north in the world, about 100 miles north of Winnipeg is where we pushed it. Those varieties are not tall, they're short. And they're frost resistant and they're drought resistant. And when the big winds came through, they blew down Monsanto's varieties, but are stood. So plant for climate change and plant local. And then grow your food for your own community. You know, uh, we have to do some decolonizing to remember how it is that we grow and how it is that we eat. You know, like our hominy, our hominy food, when you know how to grow that and you know how to process that, that can really rock the B vitamins and improve your nutrition, you know. And what's happened to our communities like this whole country is that we took the Pillsbury Doughboy too seriously and we all started looking like him. The time to move on, you know, in this time. And then, you know, we need to adapt our technology because I was out on Pine Ridge Reservation last year and they were trying to grow their varieties of tomatoes and big hailstorms knocked it out, you know, a couple years in succession. So here in the White Earth Reservation and in our territory, first we grew some of our varieties in uh, wigwams and then uh, there were high tunnels like, and then now we're building underground greenhouses because I want to be able to feed my children in the future generations. And, and uh, you know, it's good to keep it a little warmer and a little safer. And then, uh, you know, what we're looking at is post-petroleum agriculture because uh, pretty much we're slathering petroleum on everything in our food system for the 1400 miles from farmer to table to all the fossil fuels, additions, and all those things called side they put on food. You know, my feeling is, is that the word side, the suffix side, that has a lot to do with like homicide and suicide and genocide and fans with side, you shouldn't put it on your food. So we have this opportunity crisis is opportunity to rebuild local food systems because the big food systems aren't going to work. And we do that. Let's go organic. Let's get, go climate resilient varieties. And let's grow with our hands and our love and our horses. And then I want to talk about uh, hemp. You know, um, I call that the new green revolution. And for the past five years, I've been growing hemp in the state of Minnesota, but I'm interested in fiber hemp. And I'm interested in fiber hemp because it is the new green revolution. The fact is, is that, you know, they say 70 years ago, we had a choice between a carbohydrate economy and a hydrocarbon economy. Carbohydrate or hydrocarbon, and we made the wrong choice. The carbohydrate economy was hemp. Anything that you can do with fossil fuels, you can do with hemp, plus more. 
And just think the fact that, you know, the word canvas comes from cannabis. And so it turns out that a lot of our tribes have both feral varieties of hemp left over from the, you know, eradication programs. Somehow they didn't get to us. So there is some hemp in our territories, some cannabis sativa in our territories that still grows. But there is an initiative underway now for tribes with large land areas to begin looking at hemp as a part of transforming the materials economy. Because if you could take all the things you make of plastic and make them out of hemp, that'd be revolutionary. And that's what I want to see. So up in northern Minnesota, we're growing hemp. And this year I was really pleased. I sent hemp seeds out to a bunch of farmers and native farmers all around the region. And I just want to share a picture of Madonna Thunderhawk and her daughter, uh, Marcella Gilbert. And they're in, of course, the movie Warrior Woman. And then I sent them their hemp seeds and they looked really happy. So, you know, it is good to be part of the revolution. This is what our fiber hemp crop looks like. Just showing you some pictures of it. And just to say again that, you know, if you want to transform the world, this is our opportunity. Uh, systems are crashing. Idols are falling. Fossil fuels are failing. Now would be the time to walk through that portal and to make that new, that new economy. And so uh, from my little neck of the woods up on the White Earth Reservation to all of you elsewhere, Let's get local, let's get renewable energy, let's get local foods, let's grow some hemp, and let's use our indigenous knowledge of transition. Remember, we're a people that are post-apocalyptic. We have lived through our own apocalypse, and as the world around is shaking, remember we can be coherent because we know. We know how to get through this. Stick with our traditions and, and uh, pray hard. Miigwech, thank you for your time, and. Uh, Make sure you get yourself a green thumb. Now's the time, Miigwech. Anin, bonjour, Winona. It's so nice to see you in person, live here uh, on this beautiful day. And thank you for joining us. And it'd be great just to hear a little bit more about your work and, and what's been going on. So Anin, yeah, it's so nice to see you. Anin, Indoi, Magadha, to hello, my relatives, my fellow farmers of the East and beyond, and of course, to Sarah and Justin and Flora, three of the long-term farm workers up on the reservation. Thank you for uh, inviting me back and nice to see you all virtually. Um, yeah, thanks for letting me show the video. I thought I might try to show a couple more slides of what we're doing particularly, you know, as we're in the middle of our, starting our hemp harvest. And I wanna talk a little bit more about hemp and then a little bit about you know, some of the changes in the food system we're gonna need. So let me see if I can put up a couple of slides. Here you go, this is the new green revolution, as we are saying. This is what I'm thinking, you know, in the, in the moment that we're in, as systems are crashing, let's just make the next economy. You heard me say that over and over, and a part of that is this work on hemp. So I've been growing hemp for five years. This is my first, this is a picture when a, this is a tribal field and the neighbors complained about the weeds out there. And I was like, what weeds? And I went out there and it was this like nine foot tall hemp plants. I was like, holy buckets. So this is called my 60s flashback photo, which is what the hemp field looks like pretty much on white earth. And when you're trying to figure out what to do with the 20 acres of hemp, which we have this year, you're working pretty hard at it, right? So I talked a little bit about it, but um, you know, it's, it's really, you know, this discussion of having a choice between a carbohydrate economy and a hydrocarbon economy. You know, that's what we had a hundred years ago and, and we pretty much made the wrong choice and we all know that. 
in light of the catastrophic catastrophes of biblical proportions which surround us from fossil fuels. So I really think that cannabis is, the, is an antidote to the fossil fuel economy. And so I'm interested in kind of the, and I refer to it as the new green revolution, because if you could replace all the stuff that's fossil fuels with cannabis, that'd be so great. Plus our food systems, plus our materials economy, all of those things, you know? So I've been looking at it. And as I, as I kind of, as I kind of think about it, like just think about the clothes I'm wearing. So today I'm wearing cotton, but you know, cotton is uh, only part of what we're wearing. And most of us are wearing fossil fuels these days. You know, and they're saying that, you know, with H&M was like one of the most egregious jumps in, you know, I'm talking about that store H&M, like all those fast clothing stores, this egregious jump in fast clothing. And so 98 million tons of um, oil went into basically that fast clothing in 2015. And they're predicting that it's going to be 300 million uh, tons by 2050. So we need to stop that. You know, we don't need to turn into just more fossil fuels on our clothes. And I know that the oil industry and it's like last plug to try to hang on to its like fossil fuel empire is trying to just move into plastics, like the solution to everything. So, you know, part of this opportunity we have now is this opportunity as farmers to grow the next economy. And that's what I want to see us do. And y'all are super cool out there in, in Maine. I've always wanted to go to this conference. So I'm super excited to be here. But, you know, also because we're all thinking like the same way. And so not all of us have got an extra 20 acres for him. Maybe you do. And of course, everybody who is listening here knows that there's no infrastructure for building a hemp economy in this country. And that's, you know, I've been working on this for the past five years, trying to figure out, like they say, you know, where's the, the what, who killed the electric car? Like the question is who killed the hemp industry? We know that, but where's the body? You know, we can't even find any body parts out there. There's no infrastructure, there's no milling. And so, you know, we're working, a, a lot of us are working to try to build the next value added infrastructure for hemp processing in this country. And it could be all kinds of scales. And I showed, I think a couple of pictures previously of our, of our more local scale of a lot of hand. You know, this is our team here. And I think I might've shown this picture before of, of our, um, this is what our hemp crop looked like a couple of years ago. And of course we had a hand decorticate it with this Chinese decorticator and, you know, uh, and then, um, you know, we, we, we've got the beginning of some of our crop, but the, um, you know, the larger scale, and, and what, the reason I'm saying that is, is that, you know, so say 150 years ago, every farm was required to grow hemp and required to grow linen because you could meet all of your rope making needs out of hemp. You know, and so I'm just kind of saying, like, even if you had, as a part of a crop rotation, some hemp or some sums of us in our regions making hemp rope, you know, for all that stuff we got to do in farming, that's like still a good thing within the economy. And I'm just trying to point that out because we want to move up plastics and all of those. And as we look at the industry, I mean, the fact is, is that it's growing rapidly and there's not a domestic value added part in it. And that's what we really want to see. Our work up at White Earth is really in uh, building a set of uh, indigenous hemp farmers, supporting farmers who want to integrate into that. And uh, so I've been really proud of that. And then the other photo I want to show is um, a little of our value-added work. And I just wanted to talk about that a little bit. Sarah and um, Sarah worked with us in the first time when, uh, in 2003, when the uh, slow food movement uh, decided to acknowledge or, or acknowledged and, and awarded us the uh, the award for biodiversity 
um, in defense of our, of our wild rice from uh, genetic engineering and patenting. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio, and on today's show, we are listening to a recording of the keynote address given on Sunday, September 27th, 2020, at the virtual Common Ground Country Fair. And this address is given by Winona LaDuke of the White Earth Reservation in northern Minnesota. And since this is a recording, we are not taking phone calls on today's show. Thanks. That was the battle that we had at that time. And, um, you know, we've won that battle so far. And this year was a really interesting year out there parching. This is a couple of pictures of Frank Bebo, who's our attorney. He, um, you know, in our, in our battles against the pipeline company, but Frank is parching on the, on the I guess it'd be on your left or I don't know, in, in a akik, uh, kata kick, which is that um, cast iron. That's one way of processing kind of old school. And then this is a larger processing facility um, for parched rice, which is like, you know, you get it up the lake in a couple hours and it's done, um, you know, parching on this and then you got to thrash it or dance on it and then fan, fan it with a uh, fanning mill or a new scotch and noggin. The reason I'm talking about this is the question of as we rebuild a food system, everybody who's listening here knows that we got to rebuild the infrastructure for that food system. And that's the challenge that we face now as the, as the world food systems and the globalized food systems and the big food systems collapse, we're sitting here on white earth trying to figure out how we're going to process our hemp and we're working on that one. And then we're looking at our rice. I think we got that one, but you know, things like uh, flour mills, we don't have that. Portable butchers, we got a couple of those, but we need more of those. You know, these questions of how we re rebuild a vertically integrated, self-sustaining food system, which I know you're all grappling with out there, but I'm super interested in what you're learning for our own region because we have the same kinds of challenges. So for instance, me, I decide I wanna make hemp pasta. I don't know if anybody wants to, knows any good pasta makers that want to join with me, but I get it all figured out. But in the process of figuring it out, I realize that nobody is milling hemp in this country. And so if you have all these people growing hemp, where are they going to get it milled? And it needs certain milling, you know, and any place you want to go to a miller in, in my region, you can't go because they're already uh, filled up. You know, the grain mills are already filled up. So rebuilding like the infrastructure for food is what I really noticed that in this time is this opportunity too, is let's rebuild the whole infrastructure from you know the beginning on, you know, to, from the from the from that to the table. And then this is the other thing I want to talk about is you know I talked a little bit about wild rice um, briefly, and I think I talked about it in the video of restoring local uh, foods, and a lot of those foods are just in your natural world. And up in Maine, you're like us, you know, you got like maple syrup. You know, you got good things that come from trees and good things that come from your forest. Like I always look at the, the whole area, you know, my whole territory is my garden. It's not just the garden that I got, you know, that's all, it's all locked up, you know, in, in some fences, it's the other garden. But my, my point is, is that this here is a picture of the signing of the Buffalo Treaty in 2017. And, you know, it, as we look at how we restore food systems, look also to how we restore buffalo. And this uh, here, you know, I'm super proud of this uh, work. You know, this is what treaty should be about, restoring buffalo. Treaty should be about, you know, collective and international and interagency collaborations to, to support life and to protect life. And so this is the 2017 signing of the Buffalo Treaty. I think that 29 indigenous nations 
governments as well um, from the, from you know different agencies have signed on to this treaty. And so I just wanted to kind of like think bigger because I think you know as you probably gathered from my my lecture, you know I'm, I I want to see things restored that are are uh, you know the way they're supposed to be and. You know, by and large, I don't think that cattle in the Northern Plains is a good idea. I think that uh, the infrastructure of industrial agriculture that's required to support a cattle economy in our region is way out of line with reality. And that, that, that you know, the solution is this work of restoring large herds of buffalo and 41 tribes are involved in the uh, intertribal bison cooperative. So, you know, that's just a couple of thoughts I had, you know, about kind of the bigger picture. You know, and again, you know, always thinking that, you know, to me, seeds are about hope and promise. And that's why I like hanging out with farmers because, you know, we believe, we plant them seeds, we pray, and beautiful things happen. And I had the most substantial harvest I ever had this year. We really doubled down and doubled and tripled, quadrupled our production. I am just like probably the rest of you, like way more zucchinis. That was just the start. 71 Lakota squash. Good thing the sous chef is buying our squash, you know. Um, so much corn, you know, varieties we put in. We put it, we, we, we got, you know, some good acreage of corn. And then, um, you know, just happy to be part of the local food economy and uh, happy to be part of restoring all of that, you know. And here's our, um, just to share, this is um, the website for our agriculture work um, here, Anishinaabe Agriculture, where we're working on um, things like, uh, uh, hemp curriculum and uh, tribal policies on food and agriculture and hemp. So that was kind of my, um, you know, a couple of pictures I wanted to just share to embellish, um, you know, what we're talking about. And I'm just happy to be here with all the cool farmers. You know, I think that there was a bunch of us, you know, 15 years ago that were really, you know, working on this and inspired by our colleagues internationally like Vandana Shiva to stand up for our seas and keep things from coming in and taking our crops and patenting them. And, you know, so this movement emerged and, um, you know, sisters like Rowan White and Elizabeth Hoover and Tanapa, you know, there's so many great indigenous farming projects out there now that it, it you know, it's, it's, it's just exponential you know, the amount of growth and the resurgence in all of their communities. And I'm just always proud to see, you know, I mean, in my lifetime, I never saw so much uh, growing in our communities. And I think everybody saw that this year. I mean, you know, the pandemic forced people to change how they lived and people farmed and people gardened at a scale never before in my history, in my life. And even on White Earth, there was gardens. We put up gardens everywhere, grow boxes everywhere. And then I also saw you know, a lot of people saving their seeds and these on every tribe in my area has got a seed and a farming restoration program. So it's really, really inspirational. And the, the other thing I noticed is that um, this year, you know, in terms of food sovereignty, you know, we, we as, as you remember, Sarah, we buy wild rice, you know, green at Lakeside and then Frank Bebo or Ronnie processes it, right? At our little mill and our cool wood fired thing. And we're all like, we, we have a good time doing that. Well, we had a hard time getting rice this year. It was a really interesting intersection, but a couple things happened. One is, is that people kept their rice. Food security. People are like, well, I'm, I don't know when that COVID thing's gonna end, but I'm gonna hang out up here in the woods with my rice and maple syrup and deer meat. That's what I'm gonna do. That's kind of my assessment of the North Country right now. It's like, everybody's got a lot of food security they're working on and a lot of it, you know, is these harvested foods as well. 
And then the other thing I noticed is that it was interesting, and a lot of you might deal with this, but my tribe had an agreement with USDA for the Commodity Foods Program to, I think, supply 25,000 pounds. I don't know that they're going to get that this year, which is a good idea on some level because you kind of redistributed your food at a, at a not, you know, not big profit to the tribe, but you redistributed your food then across the country to Indian communities that are in the commodities food program. And so, you know, low income people got wild rice, which is great idea. But, you know, it also is an interesting thing because it kind of puts a pressure on a local food economy to be exporting 25,000 pounds like that you know, at this, at this price. And so, you know, I just saw a lot of transitions, but I've seen a lot of people, you know, more locally than ever uh, rebuilding their food systems and keeping their seeds and really particularly Rowan White and the indigenous seed savers, just, you know, so grateful to them. And, 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 you know, as a person, I mean, you, you hung out with me for, for quite a while, Sarah, like, you know, I'm always excited when the next generation of leadership is up. And then you can just kind of like hang in there and farm and occasionally show up and say, that's a good idea. Yeah, y'all are awesome. So we grow at Winona Tempe Heritage Farm. Uh, we grow uh, corn, beans, squash, potatoes, Jerusalem artichokes, and uh, tobacco, and now hemp. You know, and then we grow like all kind of cool tomatoes and everything like that, right? And so um, we quadrupled our production um, this year, largely to feed community needs. Uh, the White Earth Land Recovery Project, where you and I both formerly worked, has food boxes and are, they're kind of resuscitating the Minomichum program. And now, uh, thankfully, I'm just a producer, you know, and I don't have to worry about if there's gas in the truck to go and, and who's helping Margaret <laughs> move stuff out. They got that. You know, but um, I have seen that come back and, and a lot of the intention of our traditional foods is to be able to not only offer them uh, for our community to eat, but also to offer them for ceremonial purposes. Because a lot of our people don't, um, you know, the bandwidth and the land to grow co traditional corn varieties is a little more elusive than people think. You know, it's, it, they're not hard to grow, but you, you know, you can't grow like a little corn in your backyard. It's like corn needs territory, needs some land. And so, um, you know, I'm really proud to see our, our food go into a lot of our ceremonies. I say, you know, like I said, I, I sold some to the sous chef, you know, um, because um, they're cool. And I knew that our food would be highly respected if we were offering it to them. But then I uh, kept the most, you know, most of the rest of it for um, traditional, um, you know, feasts and stuff. So, yeah, you know, still doing that and trying to, and, and planning on growing that out as well. Thank you for sharing all of that. I think uh, just like in your homeland here, people are exploring their green thumbs and are gardening at a far greater scale than they ever have before. I think that's definitely one of the gifts of the pandemic is people's interest in seeds and expansiveness. And one of the gifts of MOFCA is trying to provide as many resources as possible. But uh, I think similar to, or I guess holding your statement about corn needing territory, I think home gardeners are still figuring out like what works best for them and what to do with it. And in that vein, we have a question from YouTube. Uh, Quinn Edwards asked um, that they, well, they say, how can someone get started with growing a small patch of hemp in a backyard? And what can you use it for around a homestead? So does a small patch of hemp make sense? And, and how should someone at a homestead level best plug into your chart in making best use? 
Yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, you can get, you want fiber seeds. I don't know that we'll have seeds available, but um, through Winona's hemp, but you, could, you need fiber seeds. And there's a couple places that, you know, I think sell them. If you look online, go get yourself, like, I, I think I got some and they're like Chinese fiber seeds and it looked like a little freeze package, like about a pound. I think it was a pound, you know, and I bought them just to see, and I ended up not planting them this year because I had these other fancy varieties from Europe and I didn't want to mess everything up. But you know, if I took that, I would have just put it in my backyard, and and in that backyard, I would have I would have uh, just planted like a one little section of hemp, you know, on some highly fertilized soil soil because the difference is significant. Like, you know, I put I put some out from last year, and I used you know mostly horse manure because I got a lot of that, um, you know, to put in put in. But um, where there was a lot of manure, or where we put in some more. Um, you know, some more um, fertilizer, I have eight, nine foot hemp, you know, mm -hmm. so it does, it really is for, it's nitrogen intensive, you know, mm -hmm. but then, you know, grow that bit and then take it and, uh, you know, when it's, when it's due, you know, you can take the seeds off of them to save them from last year, take, clip the heads off, this is my recommendation to you, or take the heads, you know, save your seeds, save your seeds, and they say, you know, for fabric, don't let it go to seed, but since you're making rope, which is what I would suggest you do, then you take it and you cut off the head and then you, you take it and you and you rent it. You like you let it sit in the field, cut it, let it let it sit for a little bit to kind of like chill out. Although you don't need to totally do that, but it's called redding, which is kind of like rotting or something, but it's like the microbes kind of separate it out a little bit. And then after that, um, and then after that you take it and you can just kind of like hand strip it. And that's what that's what we've been doing is hand stripping it. That's what you use for rope. And twining is the method, but there's also like a lot of antique rope makers that you can find like at a, you could probably find it, you know, anywhere now. And which adds to this whole discussion because, you know, all the equipment that we bought, which is kind of like intermediate scale field equipment came from China. And my point is, is that, you know, when we need to reindustrialize this economy appropriately, so you make stuff that you need here, you know, and uh, this is a good opportunity, but rope making equipment, you know, that's what I would use it for around the, around the, um, you know, twine, all that stuff for around the farm. You know, just do a little bit, try it out. I mean, they used to plant a quarter acre of hemp and a quarter acre of linen. That was the requirement by USDA, you know. Wonderful. I think from the cultural perspective in general, uh, how would you, how would you encourage people to get to know their seeds a little bit better and get to know the history behind what they're choosing and how to make it right for their place. Appreciating that farming and gardening is really cultural, social, biological, economic. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's a lot of places that you can order seeds that are kind of from your area. I try to generally grow from my territory. I think I tried something, you know, cause I knew it was gonna be a drier year, drier summer. And so I went for these Northern, uh, North, you know, Mandan varieties of corn this year, as opposed to the Ojibwe varieties, you know, and I do have some very good Oneida corn that's coming in. I, apparently I have a longer, you know, we have this kind of a microclimate and everybody knows what this is like. You have like three, four parcels that you're growing on and a couple of mine have microclimates and they, they, they just like hang in a little longer. Things are not all frosted, you know, didn't, we didn't have a hard freeze. Mm -hmm. you know, in some of those. And so, you know, knowing your own area and then kind of looking for seeds that are from that area, Northern or, you know, and Seed Savers has a lot of them and certainly kind of continuing to grow those out is really important. You know, researching it and, and there's people who have knowledge of these seeds and, 
And, um, you know, it's um, a lot of it is available. Indigenous seed savers have a lot of this information. And for people in our community who are starting to have conversations with one another about uh, what it means to be growing their food, I think one of those things where we're still learning, still learning our own language, our own language as individuals who are growing this food and how to talk about it in the most meaningful way to get people to hold the bigger picture. And um, I think personally, one way to do that is to get together and have meals and share that food and share the excitement about what we have grown and why it's important to us, uh, particularly during this COVID time. I know here we're meeting expansively, uh, but how do, do you have any ways in which you've witnessed in particular your community sharing that has felt the most meaningful that you would like to then share with us? Well, you know, I mean, the, the easiest thing is kind of what I've talked about, which is giving out these food boxes. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's been really uh, well received, you know, and so 40, 50 of those are going out. Then we offered our food at that. We just gave it away at the grocery store. You know, I just got a little booth of giveaway, you know, I mean, and I just had like cool stuff there, tomatoes and all that cool, cool stuff. And then, um, you know, so that's how we've done it. But we have some ceremonies coming up and, and, um, you know, so I usually offer those up for those ceremonies. And that's, you know, it's a little bit different cultural context. You know, we may be doing some picnics for the get out the vote plan, you know, and I'll probably offer some of our traditional foods for the get out the vote folks too. You are tuned in to Common Ground Radio. And on today's show, we are listening to a recording of the keynote address given on Sunday, September 27th, 2020 at the virtual Common Ground Country Fair. And this address is given by Winona LaDuke, of the White Earth Reservation in Northern Minnesota. We do most of our work right now with horse manure, but I'm you know, really interested in the fish guts. I don't know if you know, this is what you're talking about, but this is what I'm really interested in is how you build and rescale. Cause right now I'm like getting, you know, cause we have a large fishing economy up in our area. And so those fish guts need to go back to the soil or back to the, you know, it's like, don't lose those nutrients. And you know where I'm in where I'm living in Red Lake. You know Red Lake has a commercial fisheries um, for walleye, and so I'm thinking of feeding the soil with more of their fish guts and trying to set up a, a commercial fish emulsion factory for them. Yeah. You know to kind of like scale up rather than me. You know getting frozen uh, you know boxes of fish guts and distributing them you know around my you know just to kind of grow out this whole scaling it up because it's one thing to be like an individual farmer it's another thing to provide you know the ability for to feed the soil across the board so i'm looking kind of more systemically at, at yeah. where these holes are you know and mm -hmm. and rebuilding it um it's got good potential you know to, to grow out and i'm hoping over the next year to see you know a lot more movement in in growing out our local um our local soil growing economy of local fertilizers you know, I think that they're just asking if we're, if we're, you know, working with people everywhere and for sure, you know, we are, you know, and, and a lot of, but, you know, I'm really a regionalist. I mean, I know that there's like international movements and I've been privileged to be part of the slow food movement and, you know, to attend a lot of these really inspirational gatherings where people are, you know, protecting their seeds. You know, my, my interest in work is really in these Northern varieties and the Northern Plains and the Great Lakes. And so I look into Canada 
And uh, there's some really, you know, the Métis Seed Savers Association, there's some excellent groups up in, uh, Win you know, Winnipeg area and more and more. I mean, you think about it and like, you know, we're all pretty pastoral, although Maine is kind of north too. But a lot of people don't see, you know, I mean, I see some really big stuff coming out of the north because of all that daylight in the summer, right? You know, I mean, there's some big, big things coming out there. I got some really big, you know, like my squash this year is like huge, you know, and um, I don't, you know, and, and north, north of me is even more. And so, you know, I think that that kind of a solidarity that's regional and kind of is across your, you know, is across your, your, uh, what's it called, your growing zone? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That you know, and then but then the other thing I want to I want to say is, is that interestingly in the hemp economy, I'm pretty much interested in northern European varieties and technology. And mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if other people are you know as interested in this. You should definitely look at our Winona's hemp stuff and email us at Winona's hemp because this is like the next economy is about cooperation, not competition. Mm -hmm. If we're gonna figure out how to, to transform the world, we gotta work together. And, you know, so I've been looking at like super interested in my growing region across the north into Europe, particularly as you're looking at something like hemp, a crop that has been illegal in the United States for 80 years. You know, how do you how do you bring it um, back? You probably should look across your latitude. You know, and grows well in the North Country. That's what I know. And so I'm you know I'm, I'm kind of looking at the seed. Seed, seed, you know, sharing in, in, in my geography. I don't know if that answers your question. I do have a question for y'all. Maybe someone has already talked about this. So I also been growing all these heritage potato varieties. And um, Flora, my friend from up there, she told me, like I said, how do y'all deal with those big potato companies and all their crazy stuff, you know, because Maine and Minnesota and, you know, Idaho are big potato states, you know, and and these are evil potato companies. We're fighting RDO Offit, and Sarah remembers that from back in the day, you know. But um, we, uh, you know, so I was interested in other people's strategies to keep your heritage potatoes out of the fray of, the, of those guys, and you know, when the potato bug invasion comes. So I'm, I'm, we're doing a lot of working on how you restore these varieties, and then also how you restore these varieties and push back industrial ag or plan you know, for trying to protect your varieties. And so I was just kind of, you know, at some point people got some answers for, for how Maine is dealing with that or the organic farmers up there. I'd be super interested. I planted a little later, but this was the worst year for potato bugs in my life. Mm. You know, I don't know what it was like for other people, but this was like big potato bug year. I don't know what they had going, but. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting question. And I hope some of the people listening who particularly are connected to the potato industry in a larger scale or a smaller scale right in with their response and I'll share them. Uh, but I'll say one way is uh, I think being a commercial producer myself for related to potatoes but other crops is really just the, like starting in and then moving out and telling our story. And I think of it in terms of price. I've actually cut back my potato production uh, and this year did not grow any because it is hard to compete price-wise with those other industries and I need to tell the story like why is this potato tastier? Why does this potato have value? Why does this potato look different than potatoes? And then it's uh, it's creating the cultural change that people are willing to pay for that. Like this is how I wanna manage my potato beetles. It feels right to my community. It feels right to the earth. So it takes more labor and that has a value. 
because I want to pay a living wage. And so I think it really is telling the story, telling the story of all of our foods, telling the story of the squash with the hope and the seeds and the beauty of the corn and knowing that it might look different and it might taste different, but this is why and its value is, is more than economic. Yeah. Um, and then we need that to spread. But uh, I think that is part of the work of Mafka and definitely the work of all of us here. Um, but I feel like it's a big conversation. And one reason why I know personally, I'm so grateful that this conversation is happening in a virtual way so that hopefully more people can access it. Because as the producers, we can't be the only people having those conversations. Like we're out there squishing the bugs, you know? Kind of this question that I noticed on the grains of where do you get your grains milled and who has a wind powered grain mill? You know, that's kind of my question now is how you rebuild intermediate scale because as I, you know, start walking into the hemp industry, I realized that this crop has the potential for so many purposes. And if you have all those seeds, you know, what if you turn more of them into this, you know, I mean, I, I did make some pasta out of it and we had some, you know, special people make the pasta for us. And, but now, you know, I'm like, well, now that I've got the recipe, where do I get more milk? You know, how many backflips do I got to do to do that? And then where's my local production, you know, my co-packers. So, you know, I know that in Maine, you have done a lot of thinking about this. Minnesota is obviously, you know, a pretty progressive state too, but very interested because if you guys have got a more infrastructure in your milling industry, we need it too. You know, that's what I really noticed at the, at the, you know, as I was looking into, you know, this year, I was like, wow, someone's got to rebuild the local milling structure. But, you know, what an opportunity. You know, what an opportunity. We've been, you know, wringing, not wringing our hands, but we've been pretty pissed off at the concentration in the food industry. And now it's collapsing. So, like, let's just step up, you know, and, and um, people, you know, that's how change is made. You know, I don't want to say crisis is opportunity any more times, but I'm like, you know, now would be a good time to rebuild those systems because it looks like I won't be getting any pork from Smithfield Foods this year. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as you're talking about the, the Green New Deal, the new economy that we're growing, you know, hemp is part of that. Um, but we're also dealing with climate change. And we, we had one of the worst droughts in Maine this summer. And Maine is usually a place that has a lot of water. And so you talk about growing the different corn varieties, but you know, what do you see with climate change coming and, and the necessity of how we need to adapt? Yeah, I mean, like I said, I, I picked kind of the drier varieties and then I prayed and did our best. And you know, as you, as you likely remember, we don't have irrigation you know, in our fields. And so I'm interested in you know, non-irrigated agriculture and I'm in Minnesota, I should be able to manage that for crying out loud. You know, but it was dry and last bit. And then last year in comparison to that, we were like bobbing for potatoes, mm. right? You know, and so that was, that was crazy and disastrous and time consuming and stressful. <laughs> this year we are bobbing for potatoes, but it was very dry. And then I just watched my varieties adapt. My theory is, is that those heritage varieties are smart and they can adapt those GMO varieties and, and hybrids can't, they aren't smart varieties. And so, you know, I watched my corn weight I watched some of my corn come in lower, you know, shorter. I watched, um, what else did I watch? I watched a bunch of, uh, I watched a bunch of my different plants just kind of like grow out differently than I might've seen them like a little, like late, late start, you know, and you're like, are you coming? Are you down there? Are you down there? And then all of a sudden they'd pop up, you know, 
and it'd be like two weeks later than you thought, but there they were, you know? So I, I'm pretty interested in, and that's one of the reasons that I believe in heritage varieties is because they seem to be smarter than I am, which really wouldn't take much if you're a plant, you know, just to figure that out, so. Yeah, and then you do so much work with bringing up the next generation who are gonna be taking this work forward. I've, I've appreciated seeing, um, you know, some of your, your family members who I knew as just little ones who are now grown up, um, who are involved, but how are you, how, how does that work? I mean, how do you get the next generation interested in moving forward with these things you're working on? Well, I mean, I don't want to go on that crisis as opportunity. Did I already say it three or four times already? You know, but all those kids are quarantined at home. Nobody's going to school. So I'd say that's a pretty darn good opportunity to teach farming. You know, and so basically my grandkids, I, I ended up quarantining with, you know, there's four, sometimes eight kids, and then kind of a, a day program where kids come down because the school doesn't have any, you know, it's just crazy up here, like everywhere else, but we're real rural. And so I uh, just have those kids all working at the farm and they do their homework in the morning and they do their farm work in the afternoon, you know, before they get to ride the horses. And that's how we work, you know, but um you know, so a lot of people are probably doing similar things. Um, and, you know, I feel like that, um, I, you know, now is, you know, a lot of my kids, as you know, were homeschooled, right? And so, which was, you know, Sarah, you and Justin were the big home, and Flora too were the homeschoolers, right? I remember Justin used to do the math class, you know, because none of us want to do math class, right? But my point is, is that now is that time again. You know, every kid's mostly homeschooled in our area. You know, I, 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 I'm, I'm not allowing my grandchildren to go into the public schools because by fall, it's gonna be really bad up here. You know, I mean, I just assume there's so darn many Republicans in Northern Minnesota. I wouldn't send my kids to school with Republican children. That's a bad idea. You know, I'm just telling you the truth. They're scary up here, deep North and all, you know, but my, so, you know, looking at that, that's a really good opportunity. We used to call them survival schools in the 70s and 80s. The Native people had survival schools. And I'm like, these are the new survival schools, you know, or the new green revolution schools. And so, you know, that's what I plan to do is, is, is uh, try to train as many as possible and just keep inspiring them. I had a lot of kids come see the farm. They just like that stuff, you know, go give them a good example. Yes, it is. We just did, um, you know, we, we took us a little while because I think, I mean, like everywhere else, every system was in shock. Right. And then what are you going to do? And I think that, you know, somebody at a certain point realized it's going to get cold in the winter anyway. So maybe we better just stick with some of these plans like solar, you know, and, and get that get that all moving along. And so I feel I feel pretty, you know, I feel good about our solar thermal uh, work on the reservation and we've been installing more. And then, um, you know, the other thing we've done a lot of is mural projects. Um, you know, we started painting up the houses at, in, a, in one of our housing projects because, you know, they're ugly 50 year old housing projects are just ugly as could be. And so, you know, we've been, we're doing the outside and we'll do the inside during the, during the, during the winter time of some of our travel buildings. But, you know, that's kind of my, my philosophy is try to keep uh, kids engaged in, in, you know, restorative work, restorative agriculture, restorative culture work, restorative, you know, healing work. And um, yeah, it's been, and, and, and the renewable energy work. So we're eight fire solar is what we're called. And uh, we've been installing solar thermal panels on the on the on people's houses for quite a while here. I'm gonna actually try to find a picture of our eighth fire solar while, while we visit here for a minute. Ask me another question and I'll show you a really cool picture. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, excited. I know we're close to end, right? 
yeah, we've got about five minutes left here. And, you know, while you're pulling up that picture, I just want to um, share some acknowledgments. So we've been doing a Wabanaki land acknowledgement that we are on Wabanaki land here at the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association campus. Um, all of Maine was as Wabanaki territory um, and the tribes that are here and the communities that are still here today. And there are a lot of amazing projects that are happening in Maine as well. Um, the Eastern Woodlands Rematriation Project, the Maine Indian Basket Makers Alliance, um, every community, every indigenous community here in Maine is, is working on the same sorts of things that you're talking about, Winona, restoring traditional foods, um, protecting and preserving language and culture and heritage, and um, really fighting for sovereignty and, and survival. The, the Maine tribes have been fighting for that for, for a long time. And um, so here at the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association, you know, we're primarily um, largely non-native white, you know, ally group. And so we want to be as supportive of allies as we can. And, and we're doing a lot to learn and center Indigenous voices and build those relationships with Indigenous communities here. And um, we encourage everybody to do that in their communities because it really is about building building relationships listening and and um, centering the indigenous voices for your communities so awesome to see the pictures here Winona and I don't know if you want to just share yeah, any just, other yeah just a couple and I'm, I'm really you know thank you for for saying that and reaffirming like the hard work in these communities and I and you know I think a lot of people get like indigenous people you know we never really you know nothing trickled down <laughs> we'll go with that for this economy. And so, you know, long time, we figured we better try to take care of this stuff ourselves and we're doing our best, you know? And so um, on, on White Earth, we, you know, Ronnie runs this thing. She knows who Ronnie is, Eighth Fire Solar. Ronnie is doing these, uh, this is these solar thermal installs. And this is what, you know, the equipment looks like. And you can put them on the south side of your wall. And this is in a housing project. And it could save about 20% of your heating bill. And, you know, the intersection between food poverty and energy, po you know, or heat poverty, you know, is pretty significant in the North Country. And this is our manufacturing facility here. Um, and um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this on the reservation and, and making these solar thermal panels, these eight fire solar panels. I've been really, you know, proud of, of that work. And, and, and you know, in, as, we, as we continue on, you know, I think that the... That the um, you know, part of what we need to do clearly is just rebuild local economies, all the facets of them. And this is that opportunity. And, you know, I don't know, um, you know, I don't know all of the mechanisms and I know that we all better vote so we can like take back the country, if you want to say that. I, I like to take it back a little bit more than even an election, but, you know, just, just start with that. But, you know, just know that as we go through this winter, it's going to be cold. And so let's figure out how to cut our bills and, and make things better. And, um, you know, a lot of that is relocalizing a food economy and relocalizing an energy economy. Those are two, like, need, needs things for sure. With the, the last minute we have left here, Winona, um, anything else you'd like to share about any of your work or any parting thoughts for folks? Yeah, I mean, the other thing is, is that we are doing this horse farming, which you gathered. And I'm, I'm neighbors with the Amish. And I just wanna say it's super interesting kind of like Amish economics, which I know you've all looked at, but like kind of this, we call it the Amish Anabe economic model. You know, it's this relocalization with your Amish relatives, but we're doing a lot of horse farming work and learning from them. But I'm super interested in as we build a post-petroleum 
agriculture economy. I know you all out there have done a lot more work with horse farming than some of us in our region. And, um, you know, I just want to encourage just the more post petroleum uh, farming we can do. And thank you for that. Make sure you share with us if there's like some awesome workshops that we can, you know, look into or something uh, to just kind of keep building our capacity in that. But, you know, my, my fellow northerners, keep it up. Grow cool squash, grow a lot of good corn, grow awesome potatoes, fight the bad guys off, eat well, be happy, be grateful, and grow some hemp. <laughs> awesome. Well, miigwech, Winona, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, we really appreciate it, and we look forward to fostering those collaborations and partnerships between our, our northern growers and the indigenous communities here. So thanks, Winona. Yes, miigwech. Thanks to you, Sarah, and all miigwech. Have a good day. This has been Common Ground Radio, listening to a recording of Winona LaDuke from the 2020 Common Ground Country Fair. We look forward to seeing you again next month here on the radio, and please stay tuned for more great programming.